This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Zneimer. Navigating the confusion around tipping, how much, when, and who should receive gratuities. And the decline of the once popular car shows. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The number of Canadians living to 100 and beyond has hit a new record high, from just over 1,000 in 1971 to over 9,500 in 2021, according to Statistics Canada. Most, over 7,700, are women. And the jump cannot be explained by simple population growth. In 71, just 5 out of every 100,000 Canadians were 100 or older. 50 years later, it was 26 per 100,000. Some centenarians credit their long life to keeping busy, having a loving family, and enjoying the small pleasures. In addition, drug therapies, vaccines, and a more active lifestyle have extended lives. A teenager in China is the youngest person ever diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's disease. A new study outlines how the 19-year-old began to show signs of memory loss two years before he was referred for testing in Beijing. Before the onset of the symptoms, he was an above-average student. Neither his parents, grandparents, nor close relatives had a history of dementia, cognitive decline, or psychiatric illness, and he had no history of head injuries, psychiatric or psychological disorders, or diseases related to memory decline. Spain just became the first Western country to offer paid time off for menstrual leave. The law passed this week allows those who are suffering from severe menstrual pain to take up to five days off each month. The move follows similar legislation in Africa and Asia. In 2017, Zambia passed a law that allows every woman a day off per week, while Japan has allowed period leaves for women that began shortly after the end of the Second World War. In England and Wales, the number of people who never marry is rising. Nearly 4 in 10 adults have never wed or been in a civil partnership. That's up from 3 in 10 at the start of the century. The Office for National Statistics that released the data calls the increase fascinating. It also revealed the increase in the number of adults who are divorced or who have had a civil partnership dissolved has slowed. Some British supermarket chains are now limiting the amount of fresh fruits and vegetables customers can buy amid shortages that are blamed on bad weather in Spain and Morocco. UK's largest grocery chain, Tesco, is temporarily limiting customers to buying three items each of tomatoes, peppers and cucumbers. It follows similar moves by two rival chains. The empty shelves have become political, with opponents blaming Brexit for the shortages, but industry figures said the main culprit is bad weather hurting crop yields in Spain and Morocco, two of the UK's main suppliers of fresh produce in the winter. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. 
As we wrap up Black History Month, you may be surprised to learn that tipping has roots in racism. After the U.S. Civil War, tips or gratuities were an exploitation to keep wages down for newly freed slaves in service jobs. Skip ahead to modern day, the practice is expanding in the gig economy. But advocates for fair and livable wages say the pandemic has tipped the scales in the fight for service workers to earn a decent living. I reached Saru Jayaraman, director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. Tipping originated in feudal Europe. It was something that aristocrats and nobles gave to serfs and vassals on top of a wage. When it came to the United States in the 1850s, it was resoundingly rejected. Americans hate it. They thought it was a vestige of feudalism. They said we're a democracy. Seven states actually banned tipping in the United States. Um, but something happened in 1853 that changed everything. In 1853, waiters in large American cities, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, went on strike. These were waiters who were mostly white men. They did not get tips. They got a wage. Tipping was not prevalent in the United States at the time. They went, they got a wage and they went on strike in 1853 for a higher wage. American restaurants then started looking for cheaper alternatives rather than having to pay these white men servers more. So at first, they started hiring white women uh, as a way to basically get around these white men servers who were asking for more. And then 10 years later, they saw their best opportunity ever, which was at emancipation, the ability in 1865, the ability to hire black people, black women in particular, for free tell them, we're not going to pay you. You're going to live on this new concept that just come from Europe called tipping. And in some cases, these black workers were even charged for the privilege of having a position in which they could get white people's tips. The Pullman train company was a luxury train liner that ran from East Coast to West Coast at the time, hired tens of thousands of black men called Pullman carporters. They called them all George, basically as a way to dehumanize them, and also tried to pay them no wages, just tips. So black women were hired for no wages, just tips in restaurants. Black men were hired for no wages, just tips on these as porters on these trains. The Pullman car porters organized the first black union in the United States, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, and under the leadership of a labor leader named A. Philip Randolph, won the right to an actual wage rather than living on tips. And the Restaurant Association was so concerned that the same thing might happen with their black women workers They formed a very powerful trade lobby, and in 1938, when everybody else got the right to a federal minimum wage, they got tipped restaurant workers exempted from that federal minimum wage, saying these people do not get wages. They only get tips. And that is how we've gone from a $0 wage in 1938 for tipped workers to an absurd wage in the United States of $2.13 an hour. That is the current federal minimum wage for tipped workers in the United States of America in 2023. Let's skip ahead to modern day. Um, Even post-pandemic in this digital age, there really are no clear norms on tipping, and it has expanded now just to beyond restaurants to include Ubers and food delivery and baristas and more. And how much a person tips has become kind of confusing, and it can be awkward. So what is your your best advice to tipping? And, And is it getting out of control, do you think? I mean, part of the reason it's expanding is because other sectors of the economy have observed restaurants maintaining very low wages and allowing their workforce to rely on tips and saying, oh, that's great. We want that too. So we saw gig companies like Uber, Instacart, DoorDash essentially emulate the restaurant industry, 
essentially cutting back their delivery workers' payments by how much they got tipped. Now, when Americans read about that, they were outraged. And we said, well, that's what's been happening in the restaurant industry for decades. We've seen coffee shops introduce tipping through Apple Pay Mm -hmm. and try to drive their workers' wages down because now they get tipped. So you're going to see this spread across the economy as long as we don't cut cut it in the nip it in the bud and require everybody to pay a full wage to pay a livable wage as long as we don't do that you're going to see more and more sectors try to introduce tipping and so what we advise is of course as long as people are dependent on tips tip well tip 18 20% but in all these years of advocating for better wages, livable wages, even minimum wages, what are the roadblocks? I mean, you did you did tell me now that it is expanding to the gig economy. But other than that, what are the roadblocks? The major roadblock everywhere has been the power of the National Restaurant Association, which was founded in 1919, as I mentioned, in response to workers in the other sectors trying to get a wage. They said, no, that shall never happen to our sector So they formed the National Restaurant Association. It has spread to Canada. There's now a a multinational restaurant and hospitality association, and they are fighting to keep wages as low as possible for restaurant workers everywhere. During the pandemic, consumers who were also suffering financially from the pandemic were reminded to tip generously to service industry workers who rely heavily on tips just to stay afloat. But it, it seemed to me that after the pandemic, that's when this whole tipping became confusing for people because... You know, during the pandemic, they wanted to tip high. And now that we're coming out of the pandemic, they're not quite sure, you know, how to navigate it all. So do you think it took the pandemic to shine a light on this? I mean, the pandemic really more than anything shone the light for workers that this was never a reliable source of income to begin with. So, look, in March of 2020, six million restaurant workers lost their jobs. In America, two-thirds of those workers were told they actually didn't qualify for unemployment insurance or any kind of safety net from the the government because they said their wages were too low to qualify for benefits. People are leaving in droves in the sector. In droves. And in order to retain a staff, there has to be, this might be the tipping point then in terms... This is the tipping point. Our members are saying it's not a great resignation, it's a great revolution. It's a moment when one of our members said it's a moment when millions of workers are recognizing their worth and saying, I am worth more than these low wages and I shouldn't have to rely on the variability and the vulnerability of tips. I should get a professional wage as a professional. I should get a professional wage from my employer and let tips be on top of that as they were always intended to be from feudal times. That is what workers are saying right now and employers are having to respond to that. And despite the obstacle of the National Restaurant Association, we are winning. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. That was Saru Jayaraman, director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up on this final day of the Toronto International Car Show, we look at why they're not what they used to be. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca. The pandemic. 
pandemic put all major international auto shows on pause, but it's not the only driver of poor attendance. Even before COVID-19, the once popular shows had been on the decline in popularity, but not just with consumers. Automakers are turned off by the huge expense and, like the rest of the world, are going digital. We reached Bernard Wolf, Professor Emeritus of the Schulich School of Business, for some insight. Quite a number of the manufacturers have decided to opt out. Ford, BMW, Honda, Mercedes, Volvo, um, Mazda, uh, a whole slew of them have decided that this is not the place to basically get bang for the buck. So where are they going? Well, they're doing different things. They're, you know, I think the word digital comes in. Um, the There are also um, EV shows for electrical vehicles that they've been using. Um, there's a show called CES. Um, so they're, they're trying to use different venues. I mean, these shows are costly for them. Um, and people seem to be going to these shows not so much to really buy cars, but to kind of have a good time and um, do things like, for example, now there are um, um, sort of electric runways, electric highways that people can drive an electric vehicle for, um, you know, the number of meters. Um, so I think they've decided that uh, this is just not the place to put their money. So they're going on, they're taking those, you know, valuable marketing dollars and they're going online to sell their vehicles. Are we quick to embrace that way of buying a car now online as well, a consumer? Well, it seems so. I mean, this is an unusual market at the moment because there's been a dearth of supply due to the um, uh, chips that have not been available. So it's a little difficult to tell. But it seems that there is more of this online, social media and such. So it's just a sort of different way of buying things uh, very much similar to what we see in buying other things. Right. And what are Zoomers looking for in a vehicle these days? Um, aside from, you know, the electric vehicles, are we embracing that movement? Well, uh, yes and no. I think people want to, but, you know, they're a little bit scared. And because, you know, there's still, you know, very few charging stations, um, there is a question about uh, the autonomous, autonomous driving as to, you know, how safe that is. Um, some question about battery and battery life and the number of miles that you can or um, kilometers that you can drive without having to refill. So I think there are some question marks. And so people are also, you know, I mean, people are keeping their cars longer, Um you know, when I was a kid, we had these rust buckets. Uh, and you had to change the cars. Uh, that's not true anymore. If you look and go right down the road, you don't see many rusty vehicles. Is there any um, vehicle that is becoming more popular with Zoomers? SUVs of various types, luxurious ones, uh, smaller ones, bigger ones. We do have this COVID hangover, which kind of did disrupt the consumer car shows. Um, could that also be playing a role in why the attendance is down somewhat? Well, and the attendance actually in Toronto is actually very good. Um, but overall, I think, yes. And there have been a bunch of car shows that have been cancelled. Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown recently calling for changes at the manufacturing level 
um, to cut down on car thefts um, because, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty rampant in some parts of the province now with car thefts way up. How feasible would that be for car manufacturers? Well, I think that the manufacturers are looking they're looking into a whole bunch of things and uh and seeing you know um what really is feasible and what has the best payoff I mean if consumers really start demanding that, I'm sure they'll look harder i mean if you really want to search for something uh you know you put more effort into it you put more dollars into it, and you you know you could see what you come up with. That was Bernard Wolf, Professor Emeritus of Economics and International Business at the Schulich School of Business. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.